0: After reading the wonderful announcements of God's good news of salvation through God's righteousness, as we read uh, in verses 16 and 17, we would expect Paul to have dwelled on the nature and the blessings of that salvation. But what a shock when we come down to verse 18 to read about the wrath, the sin, idolatry, degradation and judgment. But Paul has made no mistake. He knows that uh, we cannot appreciate the good news until we thoroughly understand the bad news. Only when we have really come to grips with the extent of human dilemma will we be able to respond and to answer that dilemma found in the good news of how we've been redeemed. However, today, nobody wants to talk about bad news. Nobody wants to talk about the notion of the wrath of God, or sinners in the hands of an angry God. Uh, This is not a welcoming one, even among Christians. We prefer to dwell upon God's love and grace, but we will never understand God or the work that He is accomplishing for us in His Son until we appreciate the reality of God's wrath. Now as presented in scripture, God's wrath is no capricious emotion, but the necessary response of a perfect and holy God to violations of his will. Paul usually associates the wrath of God with the coming of the day of judgment, as in Romans chapter 2 verse 5. And here, however, he announces the wrath of God. It is revealed in the present. It might mean that uh, simply that God makes clear to people that his wrath is a reality to be reckoned with, but reveal here yeah, probably has the active notion of manifest or accomplish. Now God will inflict his wrath on sinners in a climatic way in the end day. but even now, in many sort of ways that the verses uh, show, example in uh, verse 19. And 32 will make clear God is punishing human sin with his wrath Noting that parallel between verse 17 and 18 some scholars suggest that the revelation of God's wrath is a part of the revelation of his righteousness but this is unlikely and God's uh, righteousness as I uh, shared earlier is the saving activity. God's wrath is the reason why God's righteousness is needed, but it is not part of that righteousness. So looking at verse 18 stands as the ending of the entire argument of verse 18 to chapter 3 verse 20. In the rest of this section, Paul will detail the ways in which God's wrath is inflicted and especially The reason why he inflicts the wrath. So now let's look at the end of verse 18 and though easily overlooked furnishes the clue to the direction that Paul's understanding now takes. God's wrath, Paul has said, is visited upon the people who suppress the truth. Think for a moment about that word suppress and what it implies. People cannot suppress something that they do not have. So Paul implies that people have access to the truth. In verse 19 and 21, Paul therefore elaborates that this point, and it shows that people have not responded as they should have to the truth, that God has revealed it to them. And Paul makes some basic points to show us this. He starts off by saying that, you know what, God has manifested this truth. To all human beings, God has made it plain to them. Verse 19. Now, to be sure that the text not explicitly claim that them is all human beings, but the them picks up the people of verse 18, who are ungodly, wicked, and who suppress the truth. And Paul makes it clear that all people are included in this category. Verse nine of chapter three now in theological terms paul here is teaching them about natural revelation by contrast to special revelation which includes god's direct acts of speaking and acting recorded for instance in the scripture not everyone of course has access to special revelation but god also reveals truth about himself in the general more indirect way. In the created world itself we see this. The fascinating and intricate web of created things in the world around us speaks of the existence of a powerful and intelligent creator. Now since Paul is Uh, talking about a natural revelation many interpreters think that he is talking about only the Gentiles because the Jews of course have been given special revelation however Paul will be speaking of a condition which is found in chapter 2 however while that Paul teaches here undoubtedly is most relevant to the Gentiles he never so restricts his analysis And we must remember that the Jews have also had access to natural revelation. It is best then to think about verse 19 to 32 and speak of the condition of all human beings faced with the natural revelation, which is God's natural revelation. And the truth contained in natural revelation is limited. If you look at verse 20, Paul spells out just what information God has made plain to human beings. In an ironic apparent contrast uh, called an oxymoron, Paul claims that God's invisible qualities have been clearly seen. So how is it that a witch is invisible is clearly seen? Specifically, he lists God's eternal power and divine nature. From what God has revealed in nature, People can know what a God exists and that God is powerful, but of course they cannot know this or about the specific requirements of God's law or about the plan of God or about the culmination of the plan in the cross of Christ. Now precisely because natural revelation is so limited, it cannot immediately mediate Of the salvation to the sinner Paul hints at this conclusion at verse 20 the purpose of God's revelation in nature Paul affirms is that people might be without excuse they cannot claim ignorance when God visits his wrath upon them note this is a transitional word at the beginning of verse 21 People actually knew God. The language in the scripture often refers to the saving relationship with God. and here clearly that is not the case. It is Paul's way of making the point that people do not have some knowledge about God. The problem as the rest of 21 uh, makes clear that it is they who do not respond appropriately to the knowledge. Rather than glorifying or giving thanks to God, they have their hearts darkened and thinking that is perverted. So what Paul says here in these verses is critical to our assessment of the situation of the people who do not have access to special revelation. The current climate of pluralism and uh, tolerance makes it especially important to listen carefully to Paulia, For he makes it clear that natural revelation by itself cannot rescue people from their sinful state. People have enough information about God in the world around them, and they can either be justified by that and condemned, but not enough to discover the good news that is the only path to salvation. To be sure, God can graciously use natural revelation as a means of stimulating people to look for further information about the God who created the world. And around them, and so in keeping with the approach of Paul in his speech to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17, natural revelation can become the springboard to the gospel. So we're looking at... uh, sort of all people let's look at it from there so verses 18 to 19 of chapter 1 it's all people then people apart from special revelation from verse 20 to 32 and then we got from chapter 2 verses 1 to 16 people the jews who rely on their birthright and then chapter 2 verses 17 and then to chapter 3 verse 8 we're talking about the jews So in the remaining verses of chapter 1, Paul describes the devastating effects of the universal human decision to spurn human beings, making an exchange, to which God responds by giving them over. Three times Paul depicts the pattern and its tragic consequences. In chapter 1 verse 23 to 24, They exchanged, and therefore God gave them over. And then verse 25 to 26, They exchanged, and then God gave them over. And then verse 26 to 28, And the woman exchanged, and God gave them over. Three times. In each case, human beings put aside the truth God had revealed in nature, And putting in its place their own perverted notions and activities. Paul focuses on two kinds of sins in this passage. One, idolatry. Two, sexual perversion. And you'll see that these are precisely the sins that the Jews often attributed to the Gentiles as evidence of the Gentiles. Estrangement from God, But Paul also follows Jewish customs in providing a broad list of sins that resulted from people's refusal to worship God. Look at verse 28-31. to The passage ends with a final verdict on the perverse pleasure God's people are encouraging rebellion against their Creator. Now, God's response to the people's decision to exchange the truth and the true God for idols by condemning people to their consequences of their sins and they have chosen for themselves now giving people over is not an entirely passive matter as if as one commentator puts it God simply ceases to hold the boat as they uh, was dragged by the current of the river rather we should view this action as a positive judicial decision on God's part, whereby he sentences people to the very sins they have chosen for themselves. Now, especially the instructive for the sequence of God's teaching, uh, here Paul, in in the wisdom of Solomon, chapter 11, verse, uh, verse 15 to 16, in turn for their the gentiles that's there the foolish and wicked thoughts which led them astray to worship irrational serpents and worthless animals you sent upon them the multitude of irrational creatures to punish them and so that they might learn from the one is punished by the very things by which one sins That's quite an irony there. And so downward the spiral of sin goes. And we see that in the world around us comes about that. Uh, Although Paul does not explicitly say so, he probably uh, justified in thinking that this giving over the people to their sins is one of the ways into which God is now revealing his wrath. So in the first exchange, gave, uh, give over, which is the sequence in verse 22 to 24, Paul focuses on the root sin of idolatry. So it is the one that uh, marks off sinful human beings that they dress up their decent into foolishness as the very height of wisdom. People seek to justify the rejection of the only true God by speaking of advances in Him in knowledge. But any truth that is put in the place of truth, of God, is idolatry. Paul uses traditional language to portray this idolatry in verse 23. Note, Psalms 106.20 They exchange their glorious God for an image of a bull which eats grass, and Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11 says, Has any nation ever changed its gods? And yet, they are not gods at all. But my people have exchanged their glorious God for worthless idols. Interesting, isn't it, how both texts describe the idolatry of Israel, confirming the suggestion that Paul has all human beings, not just Gentiles, in view. In these verses, equally traditionally is the portrayal of idolatry in terms of the worship of created beings. Now this is the form of idolatry typically took in the Old Testament period. Paul heightens the the distinction here between God and the created world by acting the language of creation story itself, which birds and animals and reptiles, as we've seen in Genesis chapter 1, verse 20 to 24. Now we should keep in mind that idolatry is not restricted to worshipping an image or an altar. Anything that we put in place of God, sex, money, power, hobbies, ministry is an idol. Now Jewish sources often made a connection between idolatry and sexual sin. Thus it is not surprising that Paul would portray God's reaction to the people's idolatry as giving them over to sexual impurity. Now, we uh, should note that God does not therefore initiate a sin and that not present that wasn't present there before. Take for example Pharaoh's heart hardened. It's not that his heart hardened. It was already hardened. Paul makes clear that people already had sinful natures, sinful desires. And the teaching of a text like this must be balanced with the human side of the matter. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality. Amazing, huh? Eh? You'll think that losing sensitivity will one will mean that uh, sensuality will be gone. But in fact, it's they indulge in it in every kind of impurity they are full of greed and greed for lust so the second exchange gave over sequence in the verses of 25 to 27 covers the same ground a bit more in detail however again it is idolatry that initiates the sequence They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator. God again responds by giving people over, this time, to shameful lusts. In this case, Paul elaborates on the lusts in terms of homosexuality. We see this in verses 26 to 27. Paul follows typical teachings in labeling homosexuality as unnatural or against nature now some sort of contemporary apologists uh, for homosexuality have tried to interpret this language as to mean that only sex conducted against the nature of individual persons in sinful Uh, if a person is heterosexual sex with people of the same sex would be against that person's nature and therefore wrong. But Paul holds no such individualized notion of nature. This is reading outside the text. He uses the word following Jewish customs rather than to the nature and the order that God had made. Following the Old Testament example of Genesis chapter 19 verses one to eight twenty eight or Leviticus chapter eighteen verses to twenty two chapter twenty of Leviticus verse thirteen Deuteronomy twenty three verses seventeen to eighteen. Paul sees in way in which human beings have twisted God's created intention into something quite different from what God ever intended. So those who engage in homosexual activity. Paul concludes, receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. So the third exchange, give over sequence, is not as clear as the first two. In fact, the exchange part is buried in Paul's discussion of homosexuality at the end of verse 26. Now while give over part does not come until the verse 28, Moreover, the giving over is not directly tied to the exchange, but is said to be the result of people not thinking it. It's worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. See, the Greek here features a wordplay that is difficult to preserve in the English translation. The best we can do is the awkward, because people did not approve. God in their thinking. God had given them over to minds incapable of improving and what is right. Now, we should emphasize that the fall into sin affects not just our affections and our actions, but our thinking as well. And human beings now have the mind that are incapable of consistently thinking about divine things in a accurate way so in verses 29 to 31 Paul provides us with a list of representative sins as an as he sort of elaborates do what ought not to have been done and that the end of verse 28 the three sentences which divides the sins accurately convey the structure of Paul's list He begins, very sort of generally, moves into a cardinal sin of of envy and its consequences and concludes with a wide spectrum of sins. You see that the focus throughout is on what we might call social sins. Now, social sins is the evil that we do to one another. Idolatry may be the root sin and sexual perversion is one of the key consequences, but uh, Paul does not want us to forget that the many forms that our rejection of God truth has taken. However, none of us reading such a list can come away without any sense of conviction. see, Paul wraps up his description of the results of God's wrath in human history with a general indictment. Again, he reminds us that of the natural revelation, people know that certain actions deserve death and God justly punishes people who sin in these ways. Now thus, not only do people know about God's person and the power from the natural world, but they also have some kind of inbuilt recognition of good and evil and a sense of God is just when he is punishing those who are wrongdoing. Now Paul says more on this in the matter of uh, you know natural law in chapter 2 verse 14 to 15 and uh, to all people who have access in condemning at the end of the verse those who commit sins as well as those who approve of those who commit sins now Paul may again be echoing the Jewish teachings example uh, the the Testament of Usher in chapter 6 verse 2 the two-faced are doubly punished because their practice evil and approve of others who practice it but Paul Goes further he doesn't not only uh, but also construction in verse 32 implies that his views those God approve of sins sinners as worse as the sinners themselves Paul is not minimizing the seriousness of sin he's implying that people who also label sin as good or natural, are doing great damage to the morals of society, for eventually it comes as unacceptable behaviour.